to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Daniel chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. And as you turn there, uh, just noting that what, what we just did there, Lord willing, uh, if it was true, that's the point of preaching. Uh, sometimes m- mentally we can think that the music is kind of the first half, and we call that worship, and then the second half is really why we're, why we're here. Uh, and it is why we're here, and, and worship should be, if it's proper as well, it should be uh, worship. Uh, it should be gathering around God's Word in a different way, but the music is not the warm-up to the preaching. And sometimes you just got to say that so that we have it clear as to we're continuing now in worship. We have worshiped together through song, through scriptures, through proclaiming the truths of, of God's word about him to him. And, and now this is, this is a continuation. It's not first half and then halftime, and then second half. Um, so as we turn to, to Daniel 3... Um, Scripture says King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's 90 feet by 9 feet. So this this, uh, ceiling is maybe 30-ish feet or so, so three times of these. And 9 feet is not all that wide so this was a, a gangly figure uh, most if you th- take something nine foot by 90 foot it's pretty pretty slender um, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon so if you look at this uh, artist rendition this is more of the the image of the dream you see the head of gold, you see the shoulders different, the torso, the legs, the, you can't see really the clay and iron feet down there. And, and then those are little representations of how people would look in front of the image. Um, the next image that we're going to look at is uh, the Parthenon in Nashville. So this is Athena. It was a recreation of the original statue of the Parthenon. It's about 42 feet. You see this little guy over there on the side kind of standing up. Maybe uh, you can see that. But but this is the kind of stuff we're talking about, these big statues, these images, uh, often uh, gold kind of images. Take a look at the next picture. This is probably what you would see if you were in front of, of this image. Now, now, what's interesting about the difference between the image and the dream and what we see in our text right off the bat, the text says King Nebuchadnezzar made this image of gold. And so you see this correlation between the dream where you have all these different kingdoms and then you see what Nebuchadnezzar actually did. And you remember he was the head of gold? And so it's like, hmm... I don't necessarily like all those other parts of that statue. Let's just make it 
look like me, potentially. We don't really know what it looks like. Let's just make it all gold. Like, if I'm at the top, let's just fulfill this prophecy in the way that I want it to be fulfilled. It's all going to be gold. So just to give, give you some mental images of what, what are we even look, uh, looking at when we, when we talk about these statues. If you've ever been overseas, uh, uh, went to Thailand and uh, Burma, um, year and a half ago or so, and they actually have these kinds of Buddha statues and 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 things that are just gigantic, enormous. They have small ones too, but but then there's just some of these huge creations um, that we don't necessarily see here in the states. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about. It's made of gold, probably overlaid, probably not solid gold. Um, Ninety feet tall, ninety feet wide. We're in Aramaic here in uh, chapter 3 of Daniel. And so part of what I did this week is you have to look at the Aramaic and make a translation into Hebrew, and then we're going to make some correlations into what does that mean for New Testament Greek. So the Aramaic word uh, talking about this structure is selem, selem. Very similar Hebrew word, selem. It means likeness or resemblance. And not so ironically, this is the word that we see in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man, speaking of male and female, let us make man in our image. So right off the bat, you can see the correlation of what's going on here. Here's what God is doing in creation, making man. And here's man making man. But it's not man, it's an image, it's an image, it's a resemblance of man which is not necessarily a sin right off the bat, but we're going to see as to where it crosses the line a little bit later. Man was created to be an image bearer of God, not so much in outward appearance, but in a way that would show or reveal the resemblance between God and his image bearers. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word icon in Daniel 3 for image. It's not like we probably get our word icon from this Greek word, but Daniel 3 uses this word for image. And we see this word in the New Testament in the Gospels in particular where, remember Jesus takes a coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? I've got a coin image up there if you want to throw that up there, uh, Clayton. It was Caesar's likeness, and so on the coin, they have that next slide up there. Yeah, so you see, it, well, it kind of looks like Caesar, and so Jesus uh, uses this word, whose image is on this coin? There's a resemblance, there's a likeness. So the image is not the reality, right? We wouldn't say, oh, this is Caesar, this thing on the coin. That's not Caesar, it's Caesar's likeness, Caesar's image. It's a representation of the reality. It's uh, even a shadow of the reality, you could say, but it's also a representation of the reality. So in this case, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had made was an identifiable representation of himself in some way. Whether it looked like him, nobody really had to question, like, where is this thing coming from? He's going to tell them what this thing represents, this image. It, it, at least initially the head of gold that he was, uh, he was had in his mind from the, the dream. From Daniel 2, we remember... 
that the other parts of the body, uh, God says, were inferior kingdoms. And in the end, that they would all be destroyed by the rock that was not carved with human hands, and that grew and became a mountain to fill the whole earth. So this, this statue is going away, right? So the prophecy said this is going to happen after Nebuchadnezzar. There's speculation as to, well, he's going to live it up while he can. Make the whole thing gold. I'm in charge. God said so. This could be even a fulfillment of the prophecy. So in a way, King Nebuchadnezzar is happy to fulfill the prophecy, especially since he happens to be the head of gold. But he misrepresents the application of the dream and has this statue made because there was nothing in the dream that tells Nebuchadnezzar to make the statue. It's not a command of God. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, make this statue. This wasn't a command of God, but he took it as an opportunity to exalt himself and his supremacy and literally made his dream come true. Proverbs 16.25 says this, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We see this word image as well in Romans 1.23 as Paul explains the essence of human depravity. Romans 1.18-25 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Isn't that an interesting way to look at our culture? God has shown himself in some real way to them, and they've suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. So you'll never talk to somebody who doesn't have some kind of seed of God awareness in them. Verse 20 says this, For his invisible attributes, namely, what, what can we see? What has God revealed? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So in the things that have been made, God has revealed himself to people. You may deny it. You may say you don't know if there is a God. You may have confusions about who that God is. But Scripture has said God did this so that they are without excuse. There's no fitting excuse that somebody's going to be able to say at the last day, I, I didn't even know you existed. Mm. If this is true, then that can't be true. Verse 21 continues the argument. For although they knew God, they knew God in this way, his, his power, his divine attributes, although they knew God, what was their response? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, and here's our word, for images. I'd rather have the shadow. Don't give me the substance. Suppress the substance. I just want the stuff. I just want the shadow. Images resembling mortal man. 
So there we have it. Paul's putting that together as, as an aspect of human depravity when we trade the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because... Why did God give them up? He gave them up because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did that look like? They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul, after that, says, this is the way it is. Amen, amen. Let it be so. This is, this is how it is. So do you see the exchange there in, in Daniel? We're seeing this play out as King Nebuchadnezzar creates this image, not in godliness. He creates it out of his own heart of wickedness. So who we worship is arguably the most important reality in life and in death, according to the Scriptures we see this in one of the ways the Bible shows us value and how value is revealing the dichotomy of reward and punishment. On the negative side of punishment, we read this about false worshipers in Revelation 21, 8. Beginning in verse 5, John writes this, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, here's our word, idolaters, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what an idolater is. Idolaters and all liars What's the punishment? Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So how serious does this have to be for that to be the punishment? For the punishment to fit the crime, this is the punishment. How bad does the crime have to be to get that punishment. It's hard for us as human beings to wrap our minds around the offensiveness that God feels towards idolatry. And initially it may even feel like a just a, a well, Paul says the word, wrath. Why is he so mad? Is he just some divine egotistical being that he just can't stand people not worshiping well it, it's it's a little more complex than that even though exodus 20 says 
from God's own mouth. I'm a, I'm a jealous God, but it's not a kind of jealousy that he just wants us to prop him up. C.S. Lewis said when he uh, started pursuing the truth about God, he said God just sounded like some old lady uh, clamoring for compliments all the time. He didn't get it. So why do you want us to worship you all the time? It's like it doesn't seem like God would really even care about the worship of of these minute beings. But we see in Revelation, idolatry merits a lake of fire kinds of punishment. False worship, in other words, idolatry, is as serious an offense to God as it gets. And he shows this to be true by the degree of punishment that he deems fitting for the crime. So that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing in Daniel 3. This image that King Nebuchadnezzar is setting up is the very definition of idolatry, taking this image and then calling people to bow down and worship it. Let's look at 3-2. This is the king's call. So we've seen the king's creation contra God's creation, and now we have the king's call. What's he going to do about this? This is not meant to be private worship. King Nebuchadnezzar um, made this image. Do you have a 3-2 up there, Clayton? Is that the second verse up there? Yeah, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you see all of these categories of officials. This is meant to uh, communicate how important this was. This was not just top cabinet folks. This was not um, meant to be some narrow, secret kind of meeting. This was all hands on deck. Everybody that I'm authority over, y'all need to get here because something special is going to happen. What is it? It's the dedication of this image. He's gathering people around this image. King Nebuchadnezzar made the idol, and then he sent for all the officials to gather in order to dedicate this image in a royal celebration. Now, this, this was meant to be a festive event, a, a formal gathering to let everyone know what the image meant and what they were supposed to do in relationship to it. At this point, there's no resistance recorded in the story. The king tells everyone to show up. What does everybody do? <laughs> they show up. This is how power works. This is how authority works. Someone with, with authority or power over people, they say, hey, go get that, bring it here. It, it's a power relationship. It's a, it's a hierarchy. It's an absolute monarchy, and that's how absolute monarchies are supposed to work. The king commands, and the people obey. So that's what we see. The king calls all his people, and what do they do? They respond in obedience. doesn't say they really wanted to. doesn't say they didn't want to. It just says he called, and then in verse 3, the people come. Let's look at verse 3. Then, and notice all these categories again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had 
set up. So they came at the king's calling command, and they stood before this image. They came, they stood. Verse 4, this is the king's command, the king's command. And the herald proclaimed aloud, by the way, this word herald, that's the word for preacher in the New Testament. It's what preaching is. It's a, it's a heralding. It's a telling of a message. It's a public proclamation of some kind of important message. The herald proclaimed aloud, You all, we would say in Oklahoma, y'all, are commanded. It's not suggestion, not if you want to, not if it feels good, not if you have time. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Does that phrase mean anything to us? Those who know Revelation 4, 9, 7, 9, 5, 9, all the peoples of the earth coming together around the throne to worship the Lord. Very similar language. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, that's the signal. So this is a big orchestral, you know, when you go to something that's like a big celebration, it's not just one guy on a kazoo. But this is orchestral, this is symphonic, this is a big deal. It's a dedication of this image, and that music is acting as a signal. When you hear the music, here's what you're supposed to do. You are to fall down and worship the golden image. Fall down, worship the golden image. And oh, by the way, unless you forgot, that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. right? That phrase kind of undergirds, do you know who set up this image? This is why you're supposed to do this. Fall down. When you hear the music, fall down, worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. This is the new norm in Babylon. This was the newest doxological dictate. This was the epitome of contemporary worship in Babylon. This was the latest law of the land. King Nebuchadnezzar, in his authority as king, is setting up a non-negotiable rule of life and practice. When you hear the music, here's what you do. You fall down, you worship the image. It's pretty straightforward, really. No confusion about the command, no confusion about... That's music. Really no confusion about what you're expected now by the king to do. So that's really not where the conflict is. We're going to look at these two words here. The Aramaic word for fall down is nephal, which corresponds to the Hebrew word nafal. This is the same word that we find in Daniel 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar falls down and worships Daniel after he interprets the dream. So at this point, we're, that's weird. King Nebuchadnezzar is doing this towards Daniel. But you have to understand, it's a very polytheistic society. They bow down and worship lots of things. So in some senses, it was normal 
for King Nebuchadnezzar to show his honor by prostrating himself and falling down and, and worshiping. We, we don't necessarily see worship that way. Like, when's the last time you went to church and we all fell down on our face? That would be interesting to us, and, and we would probably wonder why are we doing that, although it's, it's the primary practice of biblical worshipers, at least in the Old Testament, to do that. So this is the same word we have there. And, and even though King Nebuchadnezzar falls before Daniel and pays homage to him, the way he speaks, the words that he use, uses about Daniel's God, he speaks of Daniel's God as the God of God. So in some senses, it's right for King Nebuchadnezzar to honor Daniel as Daniel is an image bearer, a representative of God. If you see this, this worship going through Daniel to the God of God's, this mediated worship. He's not really worshiping Daniel. He's honoring Daniel, but Daniel is more of the representative of the one true God. So the honor is not necessarily terminating on Daniel. It's going towards Daniel's God. But there's a kind of honor or homage that is reserved only for God himself. The Hebrew word nafal means to fall in either a literal or figurative sense. We see this word in Genesis 2.21, where the Lord causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. We see it in, in Genesis 4.5, where Cain's countenance is said to have fallen or fell when the Lord didn't accept his offering. So why the sad face? Right? That, that's the kind of word, is the countenance fell. We see this word in Genesis 17:3 as Abraham fell on his face when Yahweh appeared to him. So it's a different kind of falling. 17:17 17, 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed at the thought that he and Sarah would have a child at their age. He's just like, "Oh my gosh, I'm 100, she's 99." What What's going on? That's the word here that we see. So it, it doesn't necessarily have a religious connotation exclusively. If you fall asleep, that's not necessarily idolatry. But if you fall down before an idol, then that's a totally different context, a matter altogether different in God's eyes. Now, the, the Hebrew word nafal is translated into, into the Septuagint um, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word pipto, pipto. And this is the word used in Daniel for fall down. Why is that important? Well, anyone uh, want to guess or know where we might find this word in the New Testament? Where do we see someone falling down or this idea of, of falling? In Matthew 4... We see this in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 8 says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So you see some parallels there, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the, the law of the land. He's the king, and he's calling all these peoples. And now you see the, the devil here tempting Jesus with this. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world and his glory. And verse 9 says, He said to him, All these I will give you if you will piptoe, you will fall down and worship me. 
very interesting that we have these same words being used in these same ways in different places across the Scripture. But the devil isn't asking Jesus to intentionally trip on a rock and fall down in front of him. This is not an accidental falling. There's a meaning of this word in a worship context that means to completely rebel against the God of heaven, both in attitude and action. That's what, what idolatry is. There's an attitude of idolatry, and then there's an action of idolatry. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't have this image made merely for people to look at, not even to outwardly fall in front of. This was a new kind of liturgy and a new worship service norm. So when you hear the music, you're to first fall down. You lower your body, fall down. Now, if you just put yourself in that position as, as Americans, uh, when's the last time we, for any reason, really bowed to anything physically? I, I can't really remember uh, where in, in worship in particular I would bow myself down to some image or some thing. We tend to think on maybe getting on our knees to pray. Maybe you did that as a kid uh, by your bedside. This was the first act. Bow down. Second, you are to worship the image. The word worship here is segid, which corresponds to segad in the Hebrew. This word means extreme deference to another person or to something. You lower yourself to show their superiority and supremacy. That's what you're doing when you worship according to the biblical language. It's an absolute pledge of allegiance. Now, the Septuagint takes the Hebrew word sagad and translate it, translates it into the Greek word proskuneo which is the primary word for worship in the New Testament. It means something like to, to kiss the hand toward someone in honor. You know, you might have a, a beauty pageant queen or something. When she wins, you know, she's kissing. Oh, thank you, thank you, showing a gratitude. Thank you so much for this. Uh, it, it's even been used to talk about how a dog would lick the, the owner's hand in deference and in affection and in submission to the owner's hand. That's what this word, proskuneo, means. We might think of it as kiss the royal ring or bow your heads or take off your hat or put your hand over your heart or maybe put your hand on the Bible and swear. It's this kind of act. It's meant to be an act of solemn devotion, but it's not merely to mean an outward act alone. The action is supposed to express the inward attitude of profound reverence and respect and loyalty and allegiance. So just ask yourself, what is this in your life? Does, does this aspect of allegiance and loyalty, does it exist anywhere? And toward whom does it exist? That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is commanding. King Nebuchadnezzar's command is a demand for allegiance and loyalty. 
It's an assertion of his dominance over all the peoples and the nations and the languages of the earth. Any guesses to where we find this proskuneo word in the New Testament? Well, Matthew uses it. First, we see this word in relationship to the magi, the wise men. They're looking for Jesus. We've seen his star. We come from the east. They go to King Herod. Where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star. We have come to proskuneo, prostrate ourselves before him, but not just as an outward act. It's a pledge of loyalty, a pledge of affirmation, a pledge of devotion. The second place, however, that we see this word proskuneo is in Matthew 4, 8 and 9, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So let's look at it again. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you, pipto, fall down and proskuneo, worship me. Same word. The devil wanted the allegiance of Jesus. He didn't just want his posture. He wanted his heart. He wanted to be supreme in Jesus' life. Can you even imagine that, what, what the devil was asking for? He's asking for the allegiance of the Son of God. He wanted to tell Jesus what to do. He wanted to be in command over him. He wanted Jesus' devotion this same devotion that was only rightfully given to God his Father. Can, can you feel the weightiness and the significance of this temptation? He wasn't just asking for some small thing. And that's also what King Nebuchadnezzar is commanding. So do you, do you see the connection? Why is Israel in Babylon in the first place? They're there because of idolatry. They have not been faithful to Yahweh, the one true and living God, their covenant God. They've been unfaithful, and so God sends them into captivity. And what do they find in this wilderness of Babylon except another opportunity to bow down to some man-made idol? This is what they got in trouble for, and now they're seeing nothing different in the wilderness. So do you see the temptation there? May I ask us this question? How much is our worship worth? How much is your worship worth? Can it be bought? Your loyalty, your allegiance, your devotion, your submission... If it can be bought, what's the price? What are you unwilling to trade for this allegiance? Because you see, worship is not fundamentally about music. It's hard for us to recognize and understand sometimes, but it's not fundamentally about music, although as you can see here, music is often used as kind of a cue for worship Acts to begin, and rightly so, according to uh, Psalm 150. Some in the early church in the synagogue, they got rid of their instruments and music. 
because they said, oh, that's what all those pagans are doing. They strike up the band. They all idol worship, so we don't want to have any part of that. And so what about Psalm 150, though? (laughs) Instead of going to God's Word to see what's right and true and acceptable, they worshiped by negation because they didn't want to be like that secular group over there, this little parentheses. Worship is not primarily about music, but it is fundamentally about your loyalty. Who are you loyal to in a way that you're not loyal to any other person, any other thing? Who, who has your allegiance? Who has your devotion? Who or what are you willing to bow to in absolute reverence and respect, honor, and obedience? Does that person exist in your life? May I suggest to you that every time we sin, we are momentarily selling our worship to the highest unworthy bidder. That's what sin is. All of this devotion and allegiance that is meant to go Godward because He is worthy, because He is holy, is sold in a different direction for some kind of exchange. King Nebuchadnezzar commands worship of his image at the price of the people's lives. Let's look at verse 6. We've seen the king's man-made creation. We've seen the king's call to the people to gather. We've seen the king's command. Now we're going to see the king's consequences. This is verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So what do the consequences bring to the table? Some guy gives this command, you better worship this thing, or what? If there are no consequences... What's the big deal if we don't? I don't have to do that. What's going to happen if I don't? Well, he doesn't leave that to their imagination. He clarifies that as a part of the proclamation. If you don't, you're going to immediately be cast into this burning, fiery furnace. I burnt myself on the stove a week and a half ago. Just a little, like, cook an egg skillet thing. And I was like, oh, my God really hurts just a little a little you know not even a full second like it's a millisecond so imagine the gravity of their hearing this for the first time if y'all don't do this burning fiery furnace no questions immediately you're going in what are you going to do can you imagine the surprise because apparently they didn't have these kinds of consequences for not bowing down to other things. It was a polytheistic uh, society. You bow down to whatever. Okay, it's fine. We don't really see these consequences associated with any other god, but, but this image is being set up as supreme with these kinds of life or death consequences. Go along with it. You can live. Don't do it. You're dead. So what was the price of their worship? 
Well, King Nebuchadnezzar says it's, it's your life. You're going to pay with your life. He creates the image. The king calls the people together. The herald proclaims the king's command and now threatens with the king's consequences. So let's ask ourselves the question, how much do we value our lives? Life is often thought of as the greatest gift, the greatest reality. If someone lays down their life in sacrifice, we say that they made the ultimate sacrifice. How about the lives of, of your family? How much do you value those? Do you value your life or the lives of your family more than you value faithfulness and obedience to your God? That's what Nebuchadnezzar is commanding here. You have to trade one or the other. If you do this, you can keep your life. You don't do this, fiery furnace. So that's what's at, at stake here. This is how serious King Nebuchadnezzar was about this command. Now I want to contrast this for a minute with Psalm 63. Psalm 63, verse 1 and 4. Do, do worshipers of God take their worship seriously? Or is that, does Nebuchadnezzar have a higher standard for worship than God does with, with his people? Look at how David talks about God in Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Look at verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Can you resonate at all with the cry of David here? If I'm honest, I don't, I don't know how often I could really say that's where my heart is. I'm, I'm seeking after God like I'm in some dry and weary land where there's no water and I'm just looking for water. How desperate a situation would that be? Your thirst, your hunger, your desires, what do you crave? What kind of relationship does a person have to have with his God to talk like this and, and be serious? The intensity of emotion, the longing, the affection, the desire and dedication, the reverence, the allegiance and loyalty and devotion, this is what we're talking about. Or is it just a religious obligation? It's just a mere duty. Would you be willing to give up your life for a religious ritual? Or would you be able to say, nah, I like my life way more than I like drinking the juice and eating a little wafer. It comes to that, like I like my life more than, than that. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is talking about. But David is not merely checking off boxes like it's some religious accomplishment or some chore. He regards Yahweh's love as better 
than life. So the question is, would we be willing to lose our lives in exchange for the steadfast love of God? Not that we would earn it, but would our devotion go to that length? Not ironically, this is the invitation of the gospel from Jesus in Luke 9. I want to keep making applications so you can see, is this just an old story and it's nice of Nebuchadnezzar and, and what's happening there, but is there any correlation? In Luke 9, we read this. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is an instrument of death, daily, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. You want to save your life, then save it. If you lose your life, you actually, don't you lose it? No, Jesus is saying this is how the kingdom works. This is how following me works. This is verse 25 keeps arguing with all these fours, fours, fours. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You could gain the whole world and still lose you. So what's the gain really there? What's the argument underneath this? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you see the choice? You can have the whole world and you can have your life for a little bit. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a different reality. Is the trade going to be worth it then? Unless Jesus is just out of his mind and making up fantasies, if this is actually truth, do you see the argument that he's telling people? Is the reward going to be worth it? If you're ashamed of me, and you experience persecution in this life, you're going to save your life, because it's going to be worth it when I come back. Jesus is promising a greater reward, even at the cost of, of one's own life. The reality is that we're all trading our lives for some kind of reward every single day, temporary or eternal. But there's a greater reality yet to come that although it cost us our very lives in this world, it would all be worth it in the end. So the question is, not whether you're going to bow down or not. You're, you're already doing that. The question is not are you going to worship or not. You're already doing that. You're already trading for some kind of reward. The question is which king are you going to pledge your loyalty and allegiance to? Whose authority are you going to live under? Whose promise are you going to look towards? What reward do you want? Do you want to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's image and have your life because he won't throw you into the fiery furnace? Or is there another reward that's better than your life? This is Daniel 3, verse 7. So the king's command, the king's consequences. Now, what are the people going to do? This is verse 7. Therefore, as soon 
As all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Apparently no resistance. We get it. Fire's hot. Body in fire, not good. We did the calculations. Didn't take too long. We're going to fall down and worship. No problem. We're good. We heard the music. We hit the floor. What's interesting about the culture in which we live is that the idol that we are constantly commanded to bow down to is actually not a very exclusive one. At least not in the way we tend to think about exclusivity. We live in a fairly pluralistic society, and the unity of religious pluralism doesn't regard itself as particularly exclusivistic, but it is. Let me try to explain. By definition, religious pluralism is supposed to be tolerant of everything. Isn't that the attractiveness of pluralism? It's all good. Whatever you want, you can have it. You have things your own way. You can make it up. You can change anytime you want to. Your truth, be true to yourself. That's the attractiveness to religious pluralism or any kind of secular pluralism because it feeds into what, whatever you want. You have whatever you want. You can be whatever you want to be. Everything is supposed to be tolerated. Everything is supposed to be accepted as a legitimate option if one so chooses, no matter what it is. The only absolute is supposed to be that there are no absolutes. I was watching an interview um, this past week where they were arguing about math and does 2 plus 2 still equal 4? And this person said, no, it's, it's racist for 2 plus 2 to equal 4. And the person was just, what, what categories do you have to then go to to figure out if we can have math? And the argument that she made was that there are no absolute ob- objective things. When, oh, did you just hear yourself talk? Like you, you just said an absolute objective thing, and then you say that doesn't exist. It's, it's hard to even have a conversation. But do you remember what Romans 1 says? There, there is a debasing of mind that goes with the resistance of God. The more you resist God, the more you're not even able to have a real conversation about reality. What we find in religious pluralism or secular pluralism is that it actually does tend towards exclusivity. You can't escape it. And this becomes the case when it excludes what it doesn't like. Do you see how exclusive that is? It actually is not very plural at all. We're pluralistic. Um, What do you exclude? If you exclude anything, not everybody's invited to the party. So that's pretty exclusive, actually. It might be the majority. It it might be a lot of people. But if you're excluding people, that's what exclusivity is. 
It's shown to be intolerant of opinions and values that are just contrary to its own. That's not very inclusive. I saw an article this week. It was written by a formerly gay uh, designer in Hollywood who became a Christian. He met a stranger at a coffee shop. This person invited him to church, and in his words, he said, I walked into the church a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. He's like, I can't even explain what happened. But he explains the double standard when he went back, and all his friends who had told him, you need to be true to yourself, and he was praised before for becoming his authentic self, and he was affirmed and celebrated. And, and yet when he told them, hey, I found my authentic self. <laughs> I found what I've been looking for all this time, and it wasn't in homosexuality. It wasn't in this. It wasn't in that. They cast him out. How inclusive is that then? How pluralistic is that then? Lifelong friends abandoned him. His production design agency fired him. What he quickly learned was that as long as you bow down to the accepted image, you're affirmed, you're celebrated. But if not, you're cast out into whatever fiery furnace that they create. If you pledge your true self, you find your true allegiance to Jesus, no. We don't want to have anything to do with that. But if you read the Bible, you know that that's not surprising. Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and we could go to a lot of places to tease this out. This is the promise of faithfulness to Christ in this world. Verse 10. <clears throat> you throw that up there, Clayton. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13. You, however, it's creating a contrast here. You, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfast, steadfastness. That's pretty exclusive, right? Paul's not afraid of exclusive language. My persecutions. You followed my persecutions. You followed my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. Not just one place, at Iconium, not just there, at Lystra. And he's kind of shortening the list here. He could have kept going like he does in, in Corinthians. Which persecutions I endured. You have to celebrate persecution. It's not fun. It's not meant to be fun. He says, I endured them, and yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Did he? <laughs> Read the list. Beaten with rods, 40 lashes minus one, stoned several times, left for dead, in danger with robbers, and in danger in the sea, and night and the day. Did the Lord rescue him? You have to have an understanding of rescue that's broader than the elimination of pain and suffering, or you're not going to get the word rescue here. If your hope is in this life only to be insulated from pain and suffering because of your allegiance and devotion to Christ, you're not going to understand this kind of rescue. 
Paul is looking towards the greater rescue that can cause him to say, to live is Christ to me, and to die is gain. What kind of faith is that? So God is not interested in affirming religious pluralism. You may just have to say that at some point to someone that you love. God's just not interested in that. He feels no need or obligation to uphold the values and ideals and opinions of man. I'm just on his side. That's where my allegiance lies. This is the God that says he exists and there is no other, and, and I'm, I just want to be there. That's my authentic self. That's my true identity. If you're not going to include that in your religious or secular pluralism, I'm not surprised. But I've made my choice. In fact... When the values and ideals and opinions of man are contrary to God's, God actually goes on a seek-and-destroy mission, both of mercy and of judgment. You remember the dream. God already told Nebuchadnezzar, this thing's coming down. There's a rock that's not made with any kind of human hands. This is a different kind of... Of, of reality, and the rock is going to smash the idol to pieces so that you can't even find any more of it. The, du- the dust is just going to be blown away. After the rock hits it, the wind's just going to blow away the pieces, and it's going to be like there's been nothing. What if you put all your allegiance on that thing? Where then will your reward be? Sure, you avoided the fiery furnace. I mean, how long does it take to burn up in a fiery furnace? I'm guessing. Not super long. It could be painful, I'm sure. But then what? Is there another reality past that that you're going to be upset about? Well, Scripture says there is. So God comes in and he seeks out and he destroys these idols both in mercy. I don't want people to give their allegiance to something that's not worth it. That's mercy for God to change someone's mind, to change the direction of their thinking, of their feeling, when, when he could give them himself. And it's judgment to those who want to stay on that path. God says, okay, I'm going to give you over to a debased mind. He gives mercy on whom he gives mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. In Exodus 20... God clearly prohibits his people from having any other gods before him or besides him. He clearly commands that they're not to make carved images in order to bow down to or serve them. And now the whole world is bowing down to this crafted image King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, presumably to save their lives and avoid being thrown in the fiery furnace. I'm going to go a little quicker here, but this is an important uh, section of, of chapter 3, you have these Chaldeans, these astrologers, and they're going to accuse God's people. The same group, apparently, that Daniel helped spare their lives by interpreting the dream, they are instigators. They're malicious accusers of God's people. So in this world, there's always going to be proactive troublemakers for God's people. Don't be surprised when you see people out there going, yeah, those Christians, those Christians. 
they were there in Babylon. They're always going to be there. They go to the king and they tell him, these Jews aren't obeying your command. See how they make it about King Nebuchadnezzar? You appointed these Jewish leaders. Maybe there was some jealousy at work in their accusation. They maybe not really care about King Nebuchadnezzar at all. They may not even care about the image. What's my position in life? Where am I in the hierarchy? They're not paying any attention to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. They don't serve your gods. They don't worship your golden image that you set up. You remember you set up that image. So they come and they bring these accusations against God's people. Verse 13, we see the king's condemnation. King Nebuchadnezzar is furious and in a rage. He commands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. He asks them if the allegations are true, and he gives them another chance to do what they're supposed to do, and then threatens to immediately throw them into the fiery furnace. He completes his threat with these words, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? To God, that's like softball. Really? Like, where is the divine amnesia at this point? Did he not remember Daniel? We don't really know how much time passed between Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. Daniel 3 is often uh, talked about as its own narrative, its own story. We don't really know how much time specifically passes. But apparently enough time for King Nebuchadnezzar to, to forget the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, as though he's not able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I don't think it's, it's merely forgetfulness in Nebuchadnezzar's life here. It seems to be more pridefulness. He's full of himself. The, the Greek word for pride actually means to be surrounded by a mist. So you can't see anything except like what's so close to you. He's furious at even the, the accusation that this could be happening. Do you not really realize who I am? Verse 16, I love this. And I've called this grace-fueled reliance. Grace-fueled reliance. As I read several of the commentaries uh, this week, at this point they tended to talk about the courage, and I think that's appropriate, the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I have a little bit different take on it. Where does that courage come from? Do we now make the story about how to be a good, faithful, stand-up-for-Jesus kind of person in the world? What's going to cause that? Are you that strong? Are we that strong enough Christians to go in our own strength then? And gosh darn it, I'm going to go make a difference for Jesus depending on me. I don't think that's what's happening here. This is verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. I love this. It says they answered. What was their answer? O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> we, we don't really need to talk about this. 
we're not going to defend ourselves. We're not pleading for our lives. Here's just, you know, everybody knows. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Where do those words come from? There, there's both grace in these words, and, and you can tell that they're relying on, oh, our God? Yeah, fiery furnace is not a big deal. I mean, yeah, it is a big deal if we don't have a God that can save us, but their answer is that God is able. We're going to serve him. No pleading, apparently, no fearfulness, no trembling, are we now to say, wow, what courage in the midst of conflict? Okay, church, go be courageous. Maybe if courage and faith were something that we could work up in and of ourselves. But the courage shown here arises from a confidence and faith that is a gift of God. Why do I say that? Three things here. Humans aren't that faithful to God in their own strength. I'm sure you can testify. I know I can testify. I'm not that strong of a witness in my own strength for God. We fold under pressure, and that's the bad news. But, number two, God tells us that faith is a gift of God's grace, not something we work up in our flesh with some kind of religious hype, with loud music and with fancy things that kind of stir us up for a moment, and then we go out and we fold anyway. Number three, Jesus promises that if or when we are in a particular situation where God is at work in and through us, we won't have to worry about what to say because it will be given to us in that very moment by God himself through the Holy Spirit. This is Matthew 10. Matthew 10 says this, Look, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not very nice. That's not very pleasant. I've never been around sheep in the midst of wolves, but I kind of get what's going to happen. I've watched National Geographic and uh, Discovery Channel. I know what happens when a pack of wolves get around a deer. Like It's not pretty. But Jesus says, because of that, be wise as serpents. Like Don't put yourself in a stupid situation just because you're going to go Make a big deal about Jesus. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. How contrary is that to our culture where we want everything to be accepted? Jesus says, beware. Beware of men. Why? Because they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. I don't know if you've heard about the, the preacher in Canada. Uh, got put in jail. Is happening all over the earth. It's getting closer and closer to us. That's not meant to be a scary thing. It's just meant to be a reality of, of, are you going to follow Christ if that's what it costs? And are you going to look to yourself to produce the courage for that? I don't think we have to. But Jesus says in verse 18, Oh, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over... Don't be anxious. 
I don't know. I might be anxious. Well, that's why he's saying don't be anxious. Why? Why shouldn't I be anxious? Don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. You see the reliance? So, okay, I don't... Oh. I thought it depended on me. No. When has it ever depended on us in the Christian life? It will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. You see the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's not about them. Remember Daniel's about God. You see God at work in their words, God giving them these words. They're relying on him. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not of their own doing. The Jews were already in Babylon for their persistent idolatry, and now we see the grace of God to his people given to these men at the very thread of their lives to stand faithful, trusting him to deliver them. In closing, verse 18, this is what I call grace-fueled defiance. There may be times that grace-fueled reliance moves towards a kind of grace-fueled defiance. Verse 18 says this, But if not, if God doesn't deliver us like we know he's able to, here's what we want you to know. Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Not going to do it. That's defiant. But it's the most gracious and godly response to that kind of setup. Here's what the king wants to happen. Here's what God has commanded us. What are we going to do? If you look at the contrast, fiery furnace, lake of fire. There's actually a calculation that you can make in that. Fiery furnace, burn up, 30 seconds, a minute, let's take it. Let's say it takes 10 weeks. Eternal lake of fire. There is a punishment to avoid in devotion to God, but there's also immense reward so that our faith is moving towards something that's not just a negative, oh, I don't want to burn it forever in hell because of my idolatry. Matthew 4.10, Jesus says this to the devil. devil tempts him, I'll give you all this stuff. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. It's at this point Jesus says, get out of here. Be gone, Satan, because it's written. You see the primacy of God's word in Jesus' life? He goes to the word. I'm doing this because it's written. Not because I feel like it necessarily. Not because I dreamed it up. It's written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Why am I going to bow down and worship you? God said... Is there different consequences? I can get, a whole, get the whole world but lose myself in the process? Is that a good trade? These three young Jews are a type of Christ, and they are faithful because God has given them the eyes to see the worth of God even over and above the worth of their own lives. That's the true heart of biblical worship. And where we have failed in our own idolatry, 
in our own self-proclaimed images and opinions that we make, and then we even command others to bow down to, or some kind of consequence will happen, where we are unfaithful to God, Jesus was absolutely faithful, even at the cost of his own life on the cross. Jesus died for the glory of his Father in complete and utter devotion to his Father's will. And what a joy it is that Jesus did not have to choose between his Father's glory and our eternal good. You see how we get brought into the reward through Jesus? In his faithfulness to God, Jesus secured our eternal salvation. This doesn't mean there's not going to be threats, accusations, kingly commands, kingly calls for obedience. That may not be taken away. But in Jesus, he has secured our eternal salvation and our eternal worship of God. I'm going to close with this as we transition to celebrating the Lord's Supper and our our, our communion with the Lord through Christ. Sujin's going to lead us in that. This is what John 17.3 says just before Jesus goes to the cross. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God. How exclusive is that? Can't get any more exclusive. If you want to follow Jesus, this is what Jesus said. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So it may cost us our earthly life. We don't know. That's up to God. Is it worth it? Jesus says, yeah, because our God raises the dead. A couple of weeks we're going to focus on the resurrection of Christ. You cannot threaten believers with death as though it's not redeemable. That's how powerful our God is. So whatever that looks like in your life, whatever idols we're tempted to bow down to, let the Word of God propel you towards a greater reward where the faithfulness is not something that we work up in ourselves. The faithfulness is grace-fueled, reliance. And then as we need to act out in grace-fueled defiance, whether that's deny yourself. I know you want that self but I want to deny you. You don't have to give in. I want to deny you because there's a better reward in faithfulness. God, give me the grace to be faithful to you, not to myself. God, give me the grace to be faithful to you, not to whoever else's command is around me, commanding me to do something that's contrary to God's word, even on a national level, even on a global level. Scripture tells us that one day the whole world is going to be unified against Jesus. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> Which unity do you want? Do you want to be a part of that unity? Or when Jesus comes back, are you going to go, yes, finally, I'm with him. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray before the Lord silently, then Susan's going to lead us through the Lord's Supper. <laughs>